relates to his will and the glory of Christ to the ends of the earth. Let us now go before the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you that you would allow us to have such a privileged opportunity as your children, that we would have the great opportunity to gather before you in your presence, not only as subjects, but as your children, called and adopted through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that even today he intercedes for us, but even you, O Lord, call us to intercede for one another. We thank, O Lord, of our own civil government that you have installed before us. We think of our state. We think of the government that you've set up in the state of Illinois. We pray, O Lord, that you would give our governor and the various representatives that represent us in Springfield wisdom, wisdom as it relates to the moral law of God written upon their hearts, that we as a people in Illinois not only would enjoy freedom, but we would also enjoy prosperity. We pray, O Lord, that you'd be with our elected officials, that you would, at times, even protect us from our elected officials when they err. We pray, O Lord, that through the work of our own state, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would have opportunity to prosper even here and now. We pray also, O Lord, for those who are lost, who do not know you. We pray for those who do not know you within our own families. We think as we have celebrated Thanksgiving over the past week, we have celebrated with many, many, many people in our families, many who do not know you, who reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, according to your grace, that you would soften the hearts of those who do not know you, those within our own families. O Lord, create in us a stillness as a representative of Christ, bearing witness to Christ in our life, conduct, and word, that we, O Lord, might be given great opportunity to present the gospel to those who do not know you. First, O Lord, to those in our homes, but then, O Lord, to the world around us. We pray, O Lord, you'd be merciful to us. The longing of many of our hearts are to see our families profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant us, O Lord, that request. Be gracious to us and offer us opportunity in that regard. We also pray, O Lord, for a mission and the work of the church. We think of the Taylor family as they are planning a church in the UK and they are now starting to perhaps get some of those wheels moving. We pray, O Lord, that you'd be kind to them in their endeavors in a place that was once known for great reformation, now very well dormant as it relates to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would prepare the Taylor family well, that as they plant a church, that they would see the fruit of that labor, that they would see not merely evangelicals gathering, but the loss that we just prayed for also gathering to hear the truth, transformed by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, renewed in the Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that their church would grow and grow quickly and that the gospel would go forth from where they plant. We pray also, O Lord, for Consulting Services Foundation and the ministry of Bebo Elkin, perhaps a ministry that many of us, even in our own congregation, don't know about, but a ministry, O Lord, that I am grateful for as it has drawn me to this church to serve as its pastor. We thank you, O Lord, for Bebo and his endeavors and works, and pray, O Lord, even on this Lord's Day, 
that you'd bless his ministry of consulting, of trying to match faithful men to faithful churches for the sake and proclamation of the gospel. We thank you for this ministry and pray for its vitality even as it goes into another year's service to PCA churches. We also pray for our own congregation. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a people of grace and truth, that we would grow in our understanding of un our unmerited favor before you as your children, but also that we would then, O oh Lord, extend that same sort of favor to one another. May our community be characterized by grace, but may it not be characterized by grace to the ends of sacrificing truth. May we be a people that both grow in grace and in truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that be exemplified by our conduct amongst one another, with one another, how we talk about one another, and how we live within community with one another. As people come to visit our church, may they see the gracious offer of the gospel found therein and the bold stand for truth found there as well. We pray, O oh Lord, for our dear brother Mitchell Horsley, who's absent from us this morning because of a bout of COVID. We pray, O oh Lord, that you help him with his breathing, that you calm him now, remind him of the security that he has in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray, O oh Lord, for a quick recovery, that he would be even with us next week, helping us lead in the choir and music ministry of our church. Continue to be with Debbie as she uh, heals from the various, uh, from the surgery she had, but also the various treatment thereafter. Be with this dear saint. Remind each of them of your steadfast love and care for them, and that you, O oh Lord, offer them unmerited favor through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lift these saints up and lift all of those, O oh Lord, who are absent from us today, whether they are away with family or whether they have come over with some sickness or perhaps even the seasonal depression that we often experience. O oh Lord, uplift them, offer them grace, and draw them into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning for our sermon is found in the Gospel of Luke. I invite you to turn to chapter 6 with me. You'll see that we're in our third part in this section, and it's because this section is actually one episode. It is one episode where the disciples are being called by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in this episode, Jesus has essentially around three give-or-take things to teach the disciples. First, he wants them to live the blessed life, a holy life, and that meant a lowly life. How are those blessed as they follow Christ? Well, they are meek. They are lowly. The second truth he taught his disciples is that they must learn to love their enemies. A most difficult call, a call that is not natural in any one of us, yet it is a call that the disciples must learn and learn well, and it is a call for you as well. And now today, we will learn the rules by which we are to live within the community of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps rules that you've heard, whether a Christian or not, about living within a community, not judging lest you be judged. These are very three very difficult texts that the Lord opens his ministry with, with his apostles. And there are three difficult texts that he offers to the church today. 
Therefore, stand up as we hear from Luke chapter 6, picking up in verse 37, and we'll go through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what it is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them like a man who built a house on a ground is like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Every community has rules. Every community has rules. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, every year I was expected to sign my life away to the community. They would send out a student handbook, and I was expected every year to read 120 pages of the guidelines of what it looked like to be a Moody student. It was a grueling task. I tell you, I perhaps skimmed it once and then I just signed it every year without ever touching it again. But there were rules that I had to live by. And, and it's because Moody Bible Institute in the city of Chicago had a certain reputation that must be upheld. And in order for that reputation to be upheld in the goodwill of that city, the students had to be kept in check. I mean, have you ever released a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds upon a city to live for four years? It would be a quite chaotic place. And so we had to sign a covenant. We had to sign a covenant that we wouldn't go across the street to the local uh, beercade that was there. We had to sign a covenant that we would not do anything to tarnish the name of our institution. It was so strict that uh, one, part of that covenant was that we would not wear our IDs outside the campus lest we do something dumb and it be ascribed to the school itself. Every community has 
rules. And today we see some of those rules, that there are both right ways and wrong ways to live within the community, and the disciples are learning this firsthand from Jesus himself. We have outlined it to some extent in previous weeks, but now we further develop how we are to relate not only to one another, but those who are throughout the world itself. How are we to relate within community? How are we to relate outside of community? Today we see the underlying principles here. How are we to live rightly within community? I don't know about you, but this is a difficult text Perhaps not as difficult as last week's text about loving your enemy, but I find it difficult to be a person that judge not lest ye be judged. I don't know about you, but naturally in my old man, I always view myself in the best of light. Every interaction I have, I think, well, Scott, you had the best intentions. You were the best example of what a model Christian looked like. And you know how I generally in my old man view you? I view you as a bunch of people who have the worst intentions, who are out to get me, out to cut my throat the moment you have the chance to. Every interaction I might in my old man be like, what is their goal? What is their purpose? We tend to always view ourselves in the best of lights. And when we have a struggle with another Christian, we often view them in the worst of lights. Do we not? It's a natural tendency of the human heart. I do good, you do bad. And if there is a squabble between you or I, I am good and you are my enemy. We often jump to conclusions, don't we not? And so what we're going to learn today is not to jump to conclusions. How do you live in community? The apostle gives us, or Jesus Christ gives us three ways. The first thing you must learn out of this passage is You judge yourselves before others. How do you live rightly in community? You must learn to judge yourselves before others. That is the whole purpose of this text. There is much misunderstanding when you read verse 37, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. There's a misunderstood text for the most part. Misunderstand it. The broader culture misunderstands it. Whenever a Christian is in a squabble with another human being, they perhaps evoke that great and faithful verse here. Christians aren't supposed to judge people. Judge not, or you will be judged. Let's start with what that doesn't mean. The Lord Jesus Christ here isn't saying it is impermissible for Christians to make judgments. You are expected to make judgments. So don't don't worry about that. You have to make judgments. The Lord Jesus Christ is not finding and calling you to suspend your faculty of making a judgment. It's impossible, is it not? We all make judgments. We make hundreds of judgments. You made hundreds of judgments just getting here to church today. If I were in St. Louis today and I saw somebody scratching their arm with a knife in their hand, I would make the judgment to turn around and go the other way. The Lord Jesus Christ isn't saying, don't judge that man and keep walking towards him and bring him to loving embrace. That's not what the Lord is saying. We all make judgments. And so it's not talking about your general faculty to have an opinion or to make a judgment. 
One commentator said in this exact regard, without justice and fairness, grace degenerates into permissiveness, just as justice without grace hardens to cruelty. And what that commentator was trying to communicate is that we don't suspend our judgment in order to permit all sort of lawlessness around us. When I was a young boy, my mom forbid me to hang out with uh, a rough, uh, hang out at the house of a family that was just rough. Uh, the father in the home uh, was a drunk of sorts, always drinking, couldn't hold a job. And the, all the degenerate moral activity that happened in that home uh, was just almost unthinkable between drugs, alcohol, and other substances. It was not a place to be, and my mom forbid me. She said, you cannot go to that home. I mean, that, that family was such a nuisance that the city itself encouraged strongly for the landlord not to renew their lease. There's community meetings about this dastardly family. It wasn't wrong for my mom to say, you shouldn't go to that house. I forbid you. That's not the sort of judgment this passage means. But then what does it mean? We are allowed to make judgmental statements of opinion. But what does this passage mean? Well, look down at verse 41. It fleshes out the sort of judgment the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own? That's the judgment that the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about. In other words, when we make critical judgments of others within our own context, within our own church, within our own society, we must ourselves first look within ourselves. Are we at fault in the various ways that we find fault in others? It's almost a comical Calvin and Hobbes comic picture that you see in this passage. Imagine sawdust. We've been doing much renovation in the Edberg home. There's sawdust everywhere. And my wife can't tell you if I have a speck of sawdust in my eye if she sees it. But if I go upstairs and one of our load-bearing beams is protruding from my wife's face, that's the sort of image here, I would notice it. That's what Jesus is trying to call our attention to. Be careful in making judgment, moral judgments of others lest ye yourself be judged. Be careful. It is in some ways laughable for a person to seek to reform someone else when they themselves are unreformed. A few weeks ago, you heard me talk about the Sabbath, and you probably thought it was too stringent. But as I preached on the Sabbath, and I, you saw me after church, go out to Cracker Barrel, you'd have had very interesting thoughts of me, would you have not? You'd have said, this man preached for 35 minutes about how to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And merely five minutes after the worship service, I see him and his family walking into Cracker Barrel. That's an exact example of what Jesus is talking about here. An even greater example within the scripture is King David himself. You think of his episode with Uriah. After having an extramarital affair with Uriah's wife, what does David do? He sends, David to, uh, he sends Uriah to the battlefield to die so that he would clean up his mess that he had found himself in. And then you know in 2 Samuel 12 all too well what happens with Nathan. 
Nathan comes before David and, and explains the story of a poor man and a rich man and the poor man's ewe lamb that he loves so dearly and tenderly. And that rich man yanks that ewe from him and eats it. And what does David say in response? He says, as the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And you know the response Nathan says, almost memorably written upon every one of your hearts, you are that man. This is the speck and log. The speck and log. It's hypocrisy. It's David trying to put on a mask to reveal who he wants everyone in the room to see who he is while on the inside being a totally different man. He's hypocritical in that circumstance. He can't see the own log in his own eyes. He sees a speck of someone who sacrificed a little lamb as David himself killed an innocent man to cover his own tracks. So what is this passage teaching us then? At least this part of the passage is teaching us to be self-critical in our discernment of ourselves. It is teaching us to go on the inside before we make judgments of others. Before you say that you are the hero of every story that you've ever thought of yourself and everyone else is the wicked villain, Jesus is saying you should have a little self-reflection here. And why? Why? It's because if you yourself had dealt with any of the sins that you are charging another with, perhaps you seeing grace in the Lord Jesus Christ as he has offered you forgiveness, Perhaps you can offer the same sort of grace-filled latitude to another. If we have these hard, stern responses to sin, and we ourselves have experienced that sin, it is most natural then to say, you know what, I think I know where they're actually coming from. I myself have struggled with that sin. And it was painful. It gripped me hard as it grips you. Think of the different sort of attitude you'd have towards that fellow believer. If you just reflected a little, we tend to sharpen our pitchforks and burn our fires a little too quickly, more often than not, instead of realizing what the Lord has done for us. And such were some of you. But you've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that same redemption can be offered to those who you see the speck in their lives. Check your own life before you check the lives of others. It's not inappropriate to judge the sin of others. You elect elders to rule and shepherd over you, and part of our job is making those sorts of moral judgments. But even we, even we, are more gracious when we recognize what the Lord has done in forgiving us. Perhaps it grants us more patience before throwing someone out of the church. So the first point, you become, when you become a disciple of Christ, you learn to live within his community. We learned in the first huge point that we are to judge ourselves before others. The second thing I want you to see that living rightly in community entails is that you are also called to bear good fruit. You're not called to be a fruitless bramble bush. That's what we see in verses 43 to 45. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is shown by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. We can further, further develop this self-critical understanding of discerning our own hearts as it relates to judging others by seeking ourselves to bear fruit within the context of community. Bearing good fruit in the uh, idea of the scripture is doing good works within the community. Within our own home, we have many trees on our property. I didn't realize how many trees we had until you move there. And this fall, you're raking up all those leaves and trying to depose of them. I, I wondered when we bought the house why there was so much leaf mulch under all of our trees. I don't know. Uh, there is so much leaf uh, foliage that there, you just can't, you can't burn it all. There's so much of it. Well, what I've learned also is that there are old pear trees on our property. And these old pear trees are almost useless. I didn't notice there were pear trees on our property because they bore no good fruit. They are no better to me than any of the other trees on our property. And likewise, I should perhaps cut them down and replace them with new pear trees. Continue the legacy of that tree for another generation. Why didn't I notice those trees? Because they did not bear the fruit they were supposed to bear. In the same way, Jesus gives us this great illustration that we do not see grapes coming from bramble bushes, nor do we see figs coming from thorn bushes. You see, there is a natural inclination. When the Lord revives us, we turn from bramble bushes to grape bushes. We turn from thorn bushes to fig trees. We are transformed, and no longer do we bear spiky, pokey thorns, but now bear good you see the origin of that fruit in this passage, though. It tells you where does this fruit come from. In verse 45, it comes from a heart that produces good. There's an origin for the fruit that we bear within our lives, and it comes from our heart. It goes as forth to say at the end of this verse that it comes from a heart, and that from that heart produces words from our mouths. What comes out of us originates from within us. An evil heart produces evil works. A good heart produces good works. It's a good aside to remind ourselves, how do we transition from an evil heart to a good heart? Well, it's a work that is beyond ourselves. You're all Presbyterians and you understand that we are born in our sin. And in that birth, as we fell with Adam in his fall, our sin made Christ's death necessary. Even the youngest among us, has had the image of God fractured by the fall, as the great theologian John Murray once said. We need Christ. Naturally, each and every one of you, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and the intercession of the Spirit indwelling you, you are the evil tree here. You are the one that bears bad fruit. You are a thorn bush. You are a bramble bush. You need the work of the Spirit. It's the only way to transition. It's the only way to bear good fruit is from his work. The Spirit turns your bramble bush heart into a great bush that bears fruit. It's the only way. And out of that transformative power of the Holy Spirit in your own lives, that is where this good heart comes. And that is where fruit begins to bear. We're reminded in Ezekiel chapter 36 when Ezekiel the prophet says, and I will give you a new heart. 
and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what this passage is talking about. The Lord replaces the heart of stone with a heart of flesh that bears good work. You might wonder, well, even my unbelieving neighbor seems to do some good. I probably should clarify what I mean by good. Good is any act or work that is pleasing to God. And only works that are done to the glory of God according to the will of God are good in his sight. In other words, those who reject God, those who are an unbeliever, I think of my own grandfather perhaps, he might do some external virtue that we would say is likely good for society. If he finds a wallet on the floor, he will return it to the man and not steal the, the things that were in it. It seems good, but it's merely externally virtuous. It's not good in the sight of God because it doesn't bring God glory and it's not to the end of our eternal good. When we think of good bound within the scriptures itself, we must think of good in the sense of salvation. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't do good works to save yourselves. It's impossible. You need the work of the Spirit. You need Ezekiel 36 to happen to your life. You need your heart to be changed from stone to flesh. And in that transformative work by the Spirit, you can now do good. You can now please God with all of your lives. We're reminded elsewhere in the scriptures, we are called to be a living sacrifice unto God. And that is what this is talking about. This can only happen for those who are truly transformed. So for you today, believer, who has called upon the Lord Jesus Christ all your life, there is good works in your life. You do bear fruit and you must. It's not, it doesn't save you. Don't mistake me. It does not save you. But it is a part of God's growing, sanctifying work in your life. When he saves you, when he saves the Israelites, then they begin to do good. And the same is true for you. So if you want to live within the context of community, you must do good works. Not because they save you, but because it's a natural outpouring of what the Lord has done in your life. The last thing I want you to see is that in order to live rightly within community, you should judge yourself before others, you should bear good fruit, and the last thing is you train with Christ. See, don't be too hard on yourself. There is a teacher to teach you the way. You don't have to rely on Pastor Scott or anyone else in this room particularly but you have to rely on Christ. Verse 39 gives us a good example of this. He told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they both not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. None of you will be better than Christ, but all of you can aspire to be like Christ. And that's what we see. We cannot be better than our master, but we can learn to become like our master. We are often like sheep, and as sheep, we often stray off the beaten path and go into all sorts of places. I think I recounted once with you, uh, maybe it was with you, it's hard to remember illustrations, and you start running out at some point, uh, of a sheep jumping in uh, to a ditch in a YouTube video, and this man laboring with all of his might seeking to pull that sheep out of the ditch. And he does so successfully. And then what does the sheep do? 
the sheep just jumps right back in. That's how we are. We are those types of Christians. Sheep that don't know any better than to jump back into the sin that we've just been rescued from. But we learn here that we are called to learn under our teacher. How do you begin to bear good fruits in your life? How do you learn to judge not lest ye be judged? Well, you learn to train with Christ. You learn under his tutelage. You learn to be like him. The best parts of my ministry are not unique to myself, but things that I've learned from other men. Think of my dear mentor, Charlie Wingard, who was my mentor throughout seminary, who taught me to write notes to people. He taught me how to do hospital visits. He taught me the inner workings of ministry. Uh, I only know those things because he trained me. And I think of my previous minister from transitioning from there to here, uh, Randy Thompson, who taught me how to navigate tumult within ministry well, how to keep a level head even when things seem so chaotic and out of whack. He showed me how to love churches that have gone through a lot and that have had difficult waters, things I did not know in myself. He taught me how to lead a session meeting in such a way that would calm all who are present. These are things that I did not know, that I must be trained in. And the Lord Jesus Christ does the same for us. He trains us to live into the righteousness that he clothes us in. It's not our righteousness, it is his. But he teaches us the way of holiness. He trains us. Trains us as a good teacher would. But he has a warning here. And it's probably fitting before we take the supper. He has a warning at the end of this passage as he trains those. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what it is like. It is like a man building a house who dug, a deep and laid, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. We see that there is two types of people who listen, who are students of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are good students and bad students. The good students heed the words of Christ and build their house upon a sure foundation. There is nothing more delightful for a homeowner than a strong and sturdy foundation. Nothing grants you greater sigh as a homeowner than when you go down in your basement and your wall is bulging. That is not something you want to see. You just see the dollar bills evaporating from your bank account at best, but at worst, the house itself is no longer able to stand. No one wants a house with a bad foundation. A believer who follows the Lord Jesus Christ, heeds his training, learns from him, is not prideful enough to say, I know better than him, is like the one who builds their foundation on the rock, who is sturdy. That when storms come, their house won't blow over. But for those without the foundation, who perhaps built on sand, as we find in other passages, when the storm comes, they are swept away. There is a cost to ignoring the words of Christ. When to live rightly in community, we must learn from his teaching. And if we fail to, we are like a people that build on a poor foundation.
Folks, you're only as good as your foundation. What do you build your foundation upon? Is it judgmentalism? In your own self-righteousness, you think you're better than everyone else in here? Is it hypocrisy? Putting a mask on for Sunday church, looking like you have it all together, wearing a nice suit, and then going home and being completely like a whitewashed tomb dead inside. What do you build your foundation upon? Is it that crummy foundation of sand, of sheer judgmentalism? Or is that foundation built on Christ? That despite your sin, he built you a foundation that you did not deserve. And that as you profess faith in him, he comes in and rehabs that bulging wall that you might bear good fruit today. Who are you trained by? Are you trained by Christ or are you trained by yourself? I'm a self-taught man in many regards. My father is often absent from my life and I love to be do-it-yourself kind of Scott. I love doing things myself. But I tell you what, my do-it-yourself work is not as good as perhaps many contractors as they would come into my home. They would wonder why on earth did this man do that? Even as I, quite ironically, this story does fit well, I judge my previous owner for everything he had done in the house. I say, why on earth would he do that? And then I do the same tomfoolery. I say, ah, oh, that's why he did that. <laughs> I'm no better than he. When you become a disciple of Christ, you must learn to live within community today. As we take the supper, it is prepared for a table for us in community. We take, judge lest ye be judged. We take together blameless in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we give him our guilt today, as we've confessed our sins to him, this table was prepared for you. It is a table for the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ to profess faith in him within community. A people that learn to take the log from their own eye before they correct the speck of another. A people that learn to bear good fruit, not because it saves them, but because it is the natural outworking of those who profess Christ. And this table is prepared for those who are being trained. Here at this table, you are trained. As you receive the benefits of Christ himself, you are trained to become more like him. This table is prepared for us today for a people that are in community. Let us close in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we prepare for the table here today, we pray, Lord, that you would write upon every one of our hearts to... to grow in greater faithfulness by this word that we have heard today. Oh Lord, hear our cries to be more like the son that gave his life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.